Amen. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Uh, if you don't know who I am, my name is Brian Williams. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. I'm also the director of the Young Adults Ministry. And uh, Sarah and I, who Sarah's up here doing announcements every week, she and I get the privilege of getting uh, really to put our entire attention and focus to you guys and to what we do on Thursday nights and to small groups and to all that kind of stuff. And um, it's such a privilege. It's such a privilege. Um, I'm thankful to get to do life with you guys and to get to be a part of this with you. So thank you um, for coming tonight and uh, jumping in on this fast. Uh, just give a shout out if you're doing a fast. Go, woo! Woo! All right. That's pretty good. That's a good turnout there. All right. Um, you're also going, woo! Oh, I'm hungry. Maybe. I don't know. It depends on the fast you're doing. But I'm glad you guys are participating with us. Um, I... Uh, I'm enjoying this and not at the same time, right? That's kind of a two-way street. But the good thing is, uh, and as we'll talk about tonight, what we are surrendering is worth it because we're getting something better, something more worthwhile, something more beautiful, something eternal. Amen? Amen. Cool. Well, um, if you weren't with us last week, I want to kind of bring you up to speed a little bit, kind of, um, to what we're doing. A fast, obviously, right? Fasting. And you're like, fasting? What? Well, last week, uh, Brian Howard um, launched us into this starting the new year 21-day fast. Um, he collectively called us all into uh, 21 days of fasting, fasting in some way or form from, from food, if medically possible, for spiritual purposes. Now, he walked through 10 things you need to know about fasting. He gave context for the why and what and all of that kind of stuff. Why are we doing this? What does that look like? What's it mean? And if you weren't here for that last week, I want to encourage you to circle back and listen to that message. Um, you can find it on YouTube or you can find it uh, where you find podcasts. You can search Calvary Young Adults. You can search CalvYA. Uh, also, if you follow us on Instagram, you can find links to all uh, these places on um, our Instagram bio. Pretty sure. Pretty sure that's how it works. Um, so check it out. I, I really want to encourage you to check it out because I think Brian did a great job of setting up what fasting is not and what it is and why we do it in the purpose because it's not just to like, you know, beat ourselves up. Uh, there's, there's something more. It's not fasting just to fast from something, but in a way it's fasting to something to achieve something, to see something happen. So the, those of you who started fasting, probably like me, you're like, this week was good, it was hard, variety of things, all that sort of stuff. And uh, I want to mention something before we go any further that was brought to my attention by, by a couple of people, actually, and that's spiritual warfare. So some of you may have experienced this. Uh, you know, spiritual warfare, uh, the, all around us is a spiritual world. All around us is a spiritual world. It's within us, and it's not neutral. It's not neutral. Yeah. When we step out in faith with something like fasting and praying, that's an assertive spiritual action. It's forceful, and it warrants attention and pushback from the enemy. So this resistance can be experienced in a variety of forms, and, and I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to stay the course, no matter what your faith. We need to call on the help of others, the support of others, to be ready and willing to do the same for someone else. We need to call on others to pray for us. We need to be willing to pray for others. We need to be willing to go to battle for them. 
Because ultimately, we aren't in this battle in isolation. That's not the purpose of what we're doing here. It's to not be in isolation. It's to be doing it together. That's how God designed us and what he intended for us. And ultimately, the victory that we're seeking isn't just for us. It's not just for ourselves. It's for our families. It's for our church. It's for our communities. It's for our friends. It's for our nation. We seek a victory beyond us. And we also have help beyond us. So you're not alone. So don't give up, okay? Amen? Sweet. Right? We've, we, we have weapons. Uh, we fight with weapons that are different than the, the world's weapons. The weapons we fight with have divine power, and they can demolish strongholds. And that's what I'm hoping we'll see happen over this 21 days. In John 16, Jesus made it clear. He said, in the world you have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. See, if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. If you resist the devil, he will flee from you. So don't be surprised if, if you're experiencing, experiencing some pushback during this 21 days of fasting, but also don't be deterred because of it. Don't be deterred because of it. Cool. Well, as we uh, continue, um, the underlying assumption, the underlying assertion that we make when we fast Really, when we do anything related to surrender, anything related to living a life in the kingdom of God, the most basic uh, like response to why we fast is we fast believing that God is better. We relinquish our comfort, our appeasement of the fleshly longings, the things we want and desire, like a cheeseburger, to make room for a better type of satisfaction, a more lasting satisfaction in God and his heavenly kingdom. We fast believing that what is received is better than what we're surrendering. And this is true not just of fasting, but of everything in the Christian life. In everything we do, we do it believing that what we're going to surrender is, is worth it because we're going to get something better on the other side. You know, we submit ourselves to God, believing that what is received is better than what we're surrendering. We turn our back on temptation. We run from it. We even maybe, in the eyes of some others, may unduly, uh, unreasonably run from such things because we understand that what we're surrendering, we're going to get something better on the other side. We'll receive something better than what we surrender. We repent from that which God says is not good, sin. We repent from that stuff. We ask for forgiveness. We say, Lord, I'm sorry. I need you. I'm going to turn the other way and I'm going to run from it because we believe that what is received is better than what we're surrendering. We engage in, in rhythms that consume time and attention and, and require intentionality. And in some ways, it's, there's some suffering. Fasting, for example, is one of those rhythms that we engage in. We do it believing that what we, what we receive is better than what we've been surrendered or what we have surrendered. And the fruit of this belief, when it's lived out in our actions, is that it doesn't end with you. It's not just personal individual. We fast, we pray, we follow God, knowing he will bring better things, not just to me, but to the community, to the church, to your family, to your friends, to our nation. This is a proactive surrender of the, the authority and autonomy 
that we each have so that through us and in us, God's authority and his kingdom may manifest in this world in this moment. We willingly surrender ourselves that we might become little like bubbles of God's kingdom in this world, little spheres of his authority that walk in, into places that are dark and we can bring light, that walk about a world that is full of hate and frustration and anger and greed and selfishness, and we can bring humility and patience and kindness and forgiveness and gentleness. We bring hope where there's nothing. There's just a wasteland. We bring all the things that God's kingdom and his authority constitutes, the the freedom and the redemption, the rescuing that he can accomplish. We bring that with us like little bubbles of his kingdom as we go throughout the world. As we surrender to him, it's not just for ourselves, it's for others. We relinquish our authority that his authority might reign in and through our life. And that's only good. It's only good for you and for others. At the heart of all Christian thought and action is ultimately the assertion and the mindset that the best thing for you, for me, for my friends, for my family, for the world is God himself. And perhaps... You're sitting here and you're like wholeheartedly believe that and you're holding tight to that reality. And so you've, you've stepped into this spiritual habit of fasting. And I want to encourage you, if that's you, fast with the hope that in so doing, you are inviting more of heaven's mercy and healing into this present season, into this world, and that it won't disappoint. It won't disappoint and we'll all be better off because of it. Maybe you're on the other side of that coin and you're like, you struggle to believe that God's worth it. Maybe you're even, you've stepped into this and you're still struggling to believe that God is worth it. Maybe you've fallen off of it a couple times. It's okay. Get back on. Maybe, maybe it's more than just struggling to believe if God is worth it. Maybe it goes deeper than that and you're reluctant to accept God's preeminence as, as the hope and the answer to you and to the world's ailments, to the world's problems. And I want to encourage you to fast, to pray. I want to encourage you to do that. And do so with the hope that in so doing, God will answer that invitation. And he'll bring more of heaven's mercy, more of heaven's healing into your life and into the life of those around you. Put some skin in the game. If you question God and are here out of curiosity or skepticism, I'm going to count, challenge you just as I would challenge somebody who's, who's wholeheartedly like Jesus. You know, they're all about Jesus. And if you're like, Jesus, that person's weird, that's okay. To both, to everyone, the challenge is put some skin in the game. Put something on the line. Make a wager here. Because it's worth it to find out the truth exploration of, of the of a life that is surrendered to the creator and the king of the universe that's a risk you can't not take you can't not take that risk it's like going to the Grand Canyon and anybody ever been to the Grand Canyon yeah yeah so a lot of people have some of you haven't so if you haven't uh, as you drive to the Grand Canyon, something you'll notice is you enter the Grand Canyon National Park and you're like, what canyon? There's no canyon. Because it's just like desert and it's flat and it's this long plateau. 
And you see this sign and there's a booth. And at that booth, they ask you for money because it's a national park and you have to pay to get in. Okay, it's the way we work. It's kind of like if you went to the Grand Canyon and you get to that sign, you get to that booth and you're like, you know, I'm just not sure if this is worth it. I don't know if it's worth that fee. Like you've driven all this way. You've driven all this way. And now you're questioning if $15 is worth it to know for yourself what it's like. To see with your own eyes the Grand Canyon and know for yourself, is it really all it's cracked up to be? All I've heard it is. 15 bucks, put some skin in the game. You're already that far along. And right now, here you are, sitting here. You're alive and you're thinking and you're interacting with others and with this world and there's meaning to all of this. Somehow, some way, there is meaning and you know it. How about putting a little skin in the game to explore it for yourself? Explore an interaction with the meaning maker himself, Jesus Christ. See what it's all about. So, consider committing to a time of fasting and prayer and see what comes of it. The worst risk you can take is not checking it out for yourself. We follow God. We do all the things like fasting uh, that relate to the Christian life. We engage in these things believing that what is received is better than what we are surrendering. If you have your Bibles, you can open with me. Uh, well, I don't have a Bible. I have a tablet, so, you know, it's all right. Um, if you have a Bible or your phone, you can open to 1 John. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 15 and 17. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 17. We'll start at verse 15. All right. John writes this. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Do not love the world or anything in the world. Where we place our affections matters a lot. It matters a lot. Uh, the, the overarching, fundamental, like, baseline, foundational command of the scriptures is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Where we place our love and affection has innumerable implications for how we live, for how we view this world and ourselves, and ultimately what our life produces in this short time we have on earth. Love for God manifests itself in us, caring about and, and working towards what God is up to and into and all about. When we love God, we care about the things God cares about. We pay attention to what he's doing. We want to be a part of what he's doing. We care about the things he's up to and into and all about. And the story of this world, this whole world, this whole universe, all that we see and know, all that we've experienced, all that came before us, all that came after, the story of this whole thing, of your life and of history, uh, of what happened like in your parents' lifetime, what happened in like, you know, the beginning, and what happens when you die. When we're long gone, the story continues. And the story plays out in space and time. 
And the story has a main character. Have you thought about history? All of it. There's one main character. And it's not you. It's not you. It's God. He's the main character. So often we go about our life thinking of ourselves as the main character. We think about all that came before, all that went will come after. We think about what's happening tomorrow and today as if we are the center of this whole thing, but we're not. He is. He's the main character of this whole story. Not just of your story, but of the story, of all stories, of history itself. And what he is up to and into and all about is the plot line of this whole thing and participation in that story, in his story, is the only thing that truly lasts. Our misplaced affections put us at odds with God's storyline. Misplaced affection puts us at odds with where this whole thing is going to end up. And it's going to end up there with or without us. But God, in all of his patience and kindness, doesn't bulldoze his way to the final chapter. But for century after century... From Abraham to now, he has been gentle and humble in heart to invite our participation in creating and establishing his beautiful purposes in this world. To invite us, like, to invite me, like, crippled, corrupt humanity, God is invited into his story. He's so patient. Patient means long-suffering. God is long-suffering with us. So long-suffering. He's willing to endure us. He's willing to endure me. And all the baggage, all the chaos that we all bring. I mean, look at our world. It's pretty odd. There's a lot of chaos that we bring. And God, in his long-sufferingness, in his gentleness, sticks with us. He's so kind. A day is coming when every knee will bow before him. And all that is contrary to him will be obliterated. But in the meantime, until he chooses to bring that day, he has elected to be long-suffering alongside us. And to invite us to participate in his radiance of goodness and mercy and forgiveness to a society and and a humanity that so desperately lacks it. He invites us, you and me, to be bastions of his kingdom in a world that's so opposed to it. Man, like, he must really love us. He must really love you and me, like a ton. Like, I'm weak. Are you? I, I'm weak. I'm, I'm, sometimes I'm real cross, and I get frustrated with things. Sometimes I'm super fickle and all over the place. I'm capricious. I'm, uh, I'm ignorant, often, of what's right or what's wrong, or I think like, no, no, this is, this is how things are. No, I didn't know. But I acted as if I did. It's got to be really hard to live with me. 
to be patient with me. I'm sure the same is true of you guys. Sorry. (laughs) And when we look at the whole scheme of all of it, of humanity, man, is he patient. What the heck? Like, how is he so patient? Why is he so patient? It's like if you, like, wanted to go on a drive and you decide, for some reason, that you've got this destination picked out. You're like, I have somewhere to be. I know where I need to get to. And so you get in the car and you invite the 10-year-old from down the street to get in the car with you, and you decide that he's going to be your co-driver. But the only thing is, the way that you're going to get there is like he's in charge of the brake pedal, and you're in charge of the gas pedal, and then you both have hands on the steering wheel. How frustrating is that going to be? Like, that's going to be terrible, right? That's going to be so frustrating. You're going to be like yanking against it, and the 10-year-old's like, I know better, and you're like, oh my gosh. Like, where I'm trying to take you to Magic Mountain, dude. Like, you have this whole plan, and you're, you're trying to accomplish it, and you're willing to invite him into it, and he just keeps messing it all up. Making it all messy. He's so patient. How frustrating would that be? But God is so willingly long-suffering with us. He's chosen it. He didn't have to, but he has. What love he has lavished on us to be so kind and tolerant. To invite humanity's participation in all of this. To share with us his intentions and desires. And to let us share in the creation of it. And have responsibility for it to come to pass. What patience, what love that is. Our misplaced affections put us at odds with what God is up to and into and all about. To fight with God over that steering wheel is not going to help anyone. John cautions and encourages us. Verse 15, he says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. That's a bold assertion. If anyone loves the world, love of the Father, that is God, is not in them. So he's saying, like, you can't love the world and love God. Yep, okay, he's saying that. So what the heck does he mean by world? (laughs) What is it that's so opposed to God? What is it that that is contradictory to to living for him? And it's an important question because God didn't make all this stuff, all that we experience, and then each day say over and over, and I quote, it is good. Like, why would he do that? If we're not supposed to love it, why would God tell us over and over to love people? Aren't people a part of this world? Like God tells us clearly, John in John uh, thirteen, that the, the world will know we are His disciples by our love for one another. We're also told that the greatest commandment, right, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second one is to love others as yourself. So we're supposed to love things in this world. Is this a contradiction in Scripture? No, not at all. And there are many other verses that clearly show two distinct concepts that are used when referencing the world. And it's played out in a couple of different ways. And so I just want to define the world so that we get a clear idea of what we're talking about here. First, the first concept that is used in the scriptures relating to the world, this concept of the world, is the created order of things. The world, when used in this way, is considered as the work, uh, it considers the, the work of God. The material creation, including me and you and all that is beautiful and good. 
We see it used in John 3.16. We see it in Genesis, many other places. Then there's what is being referenced here and gets referenced in a variety of other places. Romans 12.2, James 4.4, Luke 9, Galatians 4, and like lots of Christian circles. <laughs> there's references to the world. And like if you haven't walked, if you didn't grow up in church or you're new to church, you're like, what? What are they talking about? Like turning your back on the world and all this different stuff. You're like, I don't get this. It's okay. It's okay. There's a lot to it. So we're going to talk a little more about it. We're going to break it down here. We have these two concepts. One we are to love and one we are to run from. And John brings clarity to exactly what he's referring to as he continues in verse 16. He says, for everything in the world, and then he gives a definition here of what he means. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. So he's like, everything in the world, and then here's what I mean, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These things, these all, and all that stems from them come not from God. They are not like the things God created or intended for creation. I like the explanation of Albert Barnes on this verse. He, he writes it this way. He says, John does not say that we are in no sense to love anything that is in the material world, that we are to feel no interest in flowers and streams and forests and fountains, that we are to have no admiration for what God has done as the creator of all things, that we are to cherish no love for any of its inhabitants in the world, our friends or family, or that we are to pursue none of the objects of this life in making provision for our families. It's not what he's saying. But we are not to love the things which are sought merely to pamper the appetite, to appease the eye, or to promote pride in living. These are the objects sought by the people of the world. These are not the objects to be sought by the Christian. The world we are to turn from. The world that is incongruent with uh, love for God is, is this secular, anti-God, or at best, ignoring God way of doing things that characterizes human society. And this, that, is what we are to withhold our affections from. It's the maxims, the aims, the, the principles that reference this life and nothing more. It's the prioritizing of earthly hierarchies and systems over heavenly ones and mortal accomplishments and praise over eternal ones. This worldly construct that John is kind of laying out for us is expressed through the free, threefold pursuit of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And these three desires and their unhindered fulfillment are the centerpiece of worldly thinking as John is defining it. And while many Christians maybe haven't thought too deeply about what is meant by the world, I hope this gives you a framework of, of what it is that is opposed to God, what it is that is contrary to him, and what it is that we are to turn from and, and withhold affection from. Because there's a lot of things in this world that, let's be frank, a lot of Christians would say, oh, that's so worldly. When really, that, no, that's a person, and God loves that person. Oh, that's so worldly. No, that's, that's a system that's messed up, that needs to be reformed. They turn their back on things. They dismiss things because it's easier to. I don't know. 
because it's not good. There's a lot of things that aren't good that God still loves, like you and me. So we need to clearly define what it is that we're supposed to turn from, what it is that we're not supposed to love, so that we can properly fulfill the purpose that God has for us, being those little bubbles of, of his kingdom that truly represent him as we float around the world. Float, and that's kind of funny. Wouldn't that be cool? Remember Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? And they drink like the soda pop stuff, and then they, oh, it's so good. The bubble room, that's my favorite. Love that. I wish I could do that. All right, so these three things. Let's get a clear definition of what we're talking about with the world. What we should really understand. So first, we've got the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. This is the, the unfettered fulfillment of one's carnal desires. Right? That's like the, I want the cheeseburger. I will have the cheeseburger. Maybe another one. And a shake. Neapolitan. Thank you. It's the, it's the erotic thought that comes to your mind. And what do you do with that? Well, of course, you appease it. You fulfill it. You do whatever it takes to fulfill it. It's that longing for another drink. So what do you do? You have, you have another shot. Of course you do. It is unrestrained appeasement of our physical longings. And a, a worldly mindset, the craziest thing, is that a worldly mindset, the world around us often says anything other than doing that is repressment, is bad for you. Man, that's lust of the flesh. Next we have lust of the eyes. It's an embracing of covetousness. In our modern day vernacular, you might say keeping up with the Joneses. Like, sure, I got a car, but it's not that car. I want that car, man. Oh, it'd be awesome if I had that car. It's not being satisfied. It's, it's wanting what others have. It's uh, be that stuff or beauty or abilities or, or whatever it might be. It's, it's an, ultimately, it's an obsession with the external, with appearances. The lust of the eyes is, is an endless desire for the next thing or for more. Finally, you've got the pride of life. And this is like the most seditious of them all. The pride of life is a, a self-assertion of one's own superiority or value. It's asserting for ourselves what we're worth. Anything that, that elevates yourself above others. And this can be like outward. It can be inward. It can just be an inner dialogue. And in some way, you're, you're asserting yourself over others. You're, you're assessing your value. You're, you're figuring it out, and you're trying to make the equation balance. It can even be deception. It can be self-deception. It can be deception of others that you go about to achieve these things. That I've gone about to, deceive these, to achieve these things. Whatever it is, ultimately, it's us trying to, to swing this comparison equation in our favor. And it manifests itself in things like boasting and slander and condemnation and self-justification. The pride of life, the, the opposite of which is, is, of course, humility. 
which has no interest in tipping the scales one way or the other. Humility is not thinking lowly of oneself, but thinking rightly of yourself. And pride is not concerned at all with accuracy, but only with elevation. And that is incongruent with with what God intends for humanity, what God intends for us. I think we can all attest that we see this around our nation right now, don't we? We see the fruit of these three things. We see the fruit of this stuff, especially pride. Especially pride. Like we see political pride. We see pride in your particular set of virtues. We see, uh, the, we see this stuff manifesting on both sides. We, on all sides. On every side. Any side that's possible. Pride is present. And it's wreaking havoc, man. It's doing, just, it's doing all sorts of terrible things. Everywhere you go, people are self-justifying. People are condemning others. They're slandering people. They're exalting their own group while trying to make it as high as it possibly can so that they can push the others down. It's always an equation where they're trying to get the upper hand. And all that pride, the fruit of it, it's so destructive. It's so ugly. If you watch the news at all, it's pretty obvious. You see how ugly it is. To get an idea of how these uh, three things work and fit within uh, the sense of the world, I, I think a, a really simple example of how these all come together is in advertising campaigns. If you really think about it, the ones you probably remember the most, well, often it's the funny ones, right? But then beyond that, the ones that actually get you to buy something, the ones that actually get you to, to respond to it, they all appeal to these three things. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And the most successful ones appeal to all three. These things are not of God. They're not of God. They're not a part of what God is up to and into and all about. I mean, verse 16, the end of it, he says, these things come not from the Father, but from the world. And here's the reality. God knows that we have fleshly body and that we have uh, these physical needs and that they feel good to, to, to be satisfied in them. He knows that. He created us that way. That was a part of what he intended to do. Yet it's not in God's nature to inspire us through the lust of the flesh. God knows we have eyes. And, and that, that appearances mean a lot to us. He, he made a, a beautiful world to please us. But God always looks beyond the outward appearance. And it's not in God's nature to lead us through the lust of the eyes. God knows we have emotional, physiolog- physiological needs to be wanted, to be, to be valued, to, to achieve things and accomplish stuff. Because he made us that way. He crafted that stuff inside of us. He put it in there on purpose. He knew what he was doing. And from the beginning, the intention for it was was not that he would influence us through that. He doesn't influence us through the pride of life. But how often we like conflate these two things. We like push them together and and these like the world's constructs with God's intentions for us. And we rarely recognize how much the world, this one can be the world, (laughs) dominates. Oh, like arm wrestling. Okay, that works. We rarely recognize how much the world ends up dominating that battle within us. So, 
Again, as stated uh, from the very beginning, this whole thing is about our affections, the, the aims and the investments of our time, attention, and expense. And so uh, I've got three questions for you. Three assessments about are we loving the world or are we loving God? And this plays out in how we operate, right? Uh, it plays out in, in, in how we view the world and approach it, what our, what our real aims are. And so here's three questions for you. The first is this. Think of your standard of success. Is it worldly or godly? Think of the life you're pursuing. Like close your eyes and think about it for a moment. Reflect on how you elevate other people as successful or unsuccessful. How you evaluate them. Which of them do you pity? Which of them do you admire? And why? Like if you use that standard, the standard with which you are aligning your life currently, would you look at the life of the Apostle Paul or of Mother Teresa and would they qualify as successful? If not, you need to do some evaluation. You need to do some reevaluation and reconstruction. Think of, the, think of your standard for what makes a person romantically appealing. Is it a worldly standard or a godly standard? Again, close your eyes. Well, this is risky, I guess. <laughs> Imagine your ideal partner for navigating this life. Do you begin with their appearance or do you begin with their pursuits? Is their primary function to inspire you towards God? Or is it to appease your sensual desires? If they bring honor to you, would you prefer it be because of their character or their appearances? Question number three. Think of your standard for spirituality. Is it worldly or godly? Is it based on appearances? Is it based on performance? When you evaluate how is your walk with God going, the proverbial question, is it primarily comparative, your answer? Or is it submitted and surrendered to the, the one aim and the one authority, God himself? Gotta be honest, asking myself these questions as I process this stuff and prepare it, it just makes me recognize how imperative it is that I pray and pursue Romans twelve two, which is to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of my mind. I need my mind transformed, maybe you do too to be transformed, that we may be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will, that we may be able to understand what God is up to, into, and all about, and then be able to come in alignment with it and participate with him in it. I need my mind transformed. Maybe you do too. Because I want to live a life of significance. 
A life that manifests more of God's values in this place rather than more of the same. I want a life that sows the seeds of eternity and then like carries forwards the threads of God's story. I want to make, uh, I want to take him up on his invitation to participate in his narrative. Verse 17, it says, The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. The world's aims and pursuits and systems are fickle and fractured. They are passing and fading and just result in ashes. To love them is is to misappropriate our affections and to miss out on God. The, The world's progress, the world's technology and government and organizations, all these things that we see and we so often champion and put our hope in, put our trust in, align our life to, they can make us better off. They can, but they cannot make us better. Only God can do that. Only God can make us better. And all the stuff that we see in the news, uh, in this nation, in this society, it's painfully obvious that we can be better off, but no better. And the crazy thing is that so often, because we like being better off, it's easy to fall in love with the world. And, it, and even as it crumbles around us, the, as we hold, we end up holding more tightly to these worldly aspirations and principles rather than the one who can rescue and redeem it all. If you love the world, there are rewards to be gained. And maybe you'll gain them. Uh, maybe you'll find a place of prestige. Maybe the, you'll get some status or, or, or honor. Or maybe you'll find various forms of comfort. The world system does know how to reward us. It knows how to reward its lovers. And as impressive and desirable as it appears to be, the world system, its aims, will never win out over God. Even at their best, the rewards that, that come from this, this worldly way of thinking, this worldly way of pursuing life, only last as long as we live. The problem is that though we gain prestige, status, honor, and comfort of this world, we might gain it here in this world, but we lose the prestige, status, honor, and comfort of heaven. We're not to love either the world's systems or its way of doing things. The secular, like anti-God, ignoring God way of doing things that characterizes human society perpetually returns back to its source. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those things have been baked in since the fall of mankind. They've been there since the beginning, and we're not going to outrun them on our own. We can't outthink them. If we submit ourselves to them, they will consume our time, our attention, and our expense. In other words, they will demand our love. Love that will ultimately disappoint. Because in the end, we know that this story is about God. And what he is up to and into and all about, this story continues with or without us and will, will end in the way he decides. So the question for us is, will the vapor of our life have roots in God's story that will lead to fruit and like foliage, leaves, whatever, down the line? Or will all your efforts, will all your appetites win you trophies that will just die when you do? 
my hope um, or realization, and maybe this is for me more than for you guys, I don't know, but in processing this and writing this stuff out and saying, Lord, make this about you and not about me, he does things in those sorts of prayers uh, that make you feel foolish. (laughs) And it's for your own good. And this has been a humbling process for me to read through this and prepare this. And um, if this word of God or if the Spirit of God uh, has been calling you out on your misplaced affections and if you're writhing under that right now, I want to encourage you as I myself have been encouraged through this process with the objective reality that God is patient, God is kind, God is loving, he is gentle, that his mercy and grace are farther reaching than my failure or my misplaced affections. God's mercy and grace are farther reaching than your failures or your misplaced affections. So I encourage you, repent. Repent, turn from them. Do it again. (laughs) Even if you've done it before, do it again and again and again. He is patient. We're the 10-year-old holding on and he somehow loves us enough to just be like, it's all right, we'll get there. I'll take care of you. It's all right, all right. We won't. All right, okay, hold on. We're not turning right? Okay, now we're turning right. Okay. All right, I know how to, I know how to get us back. All right, here we go. Like he's so patient with us. He doesn't give up. And so we shouldn't give up either. So repent. Turn back to him. Maybe if you've uh, your first time thinking about any of this, uh, put your faith in the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. See him bring life to wasteland. See him bring hope to the humbled and healing to the wounded. He is for you. He is not against you. And he's inviting you to uh, align with him, to participate in this grand story and to glory in his love and affection. What a good God. What a good friend. Romans 6.23 says this, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. May you hold tight to that, that the gift wins out. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for, um, for everything, God. Like, I don't know what to do without you. I don't think we have capacity to understand how dependent we are, how patient you are, how good you are. Lord, may we hold tight to that. Lord, I pray that you would transform our minds, that you would refine us, Lord, that you would um, work in us that we might know what holiness looks like, that we might know what goodness is, that we might know what humility is, that we might pursue you above anything and everything else, and may that affection, may that devotion burn away anything else that's not of you. Lord, create in us a a new heart. One that longs after you. Lord, do something new in us. Lord, you have intentions for this world that we can't 
we can't hardly fathom, but they're so good, and you've invited us to participate. So, Lord, we humbly come before you and say, have your way. Do that new thing. We love you, Lord. And all God's people said, amen.